This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you're joining us from. Um, my name is Maria DeLeon, and I'm a movement disorder specialist, and I am also Michael J. Fox patient council member, as, as well as be your moderator this morning for the webinar. So today we're going to discuss different types of clinical research and how to find the best study for you. So we'll cover potential benefits and risk of participation and how volunteering for research can become a critical part of your Parkinson's journey. We got a lot to discuss this morning, so let's get started. So I would like to start by introducing our panelists this morning or afternoon. Um, John Humphreys was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2008. He's an active Michael J. Fox Foundation public policy advocate, and he just got an award, so congratulations. Um, and has participated in over 300 clinical research studies. Karen Williams is joining us uh, from Northwestern uh, in Chicago, right? Uh, Illinois, in Illinois. Uh, she is a clinical research manager at Northwestern Medicine and a study coordinator for many studies, including the foundation's landmark, uh, the PPMI, Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative. And we're gonna talk about that more later. And finally, but not least, uh, we have Dr. Stuart Isaacson, who is the director of the Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorder uh, Center at Boca Raton. Uh, at the center, Dr. Isaacson has been the principal investigator for many PD clinical studies, including the PPMI, and also has treated many patients with PD. So we will be learning a lot from him today. So let's get started. Um, so first, we're going to talk about the types of research studies we have. We have both um, the interventional trials and the observational trials. So Dr. Stewartson, can you talk to us more about what the difference is between those two types of studies? Well, sure. We're always uh, all in this together, trying to find better ways to evaluate and diagnose Parkinson's, better ways to figure out how to treat Parkinson's, uh, both from the beginning and throughout the multi-decade course. And we do a lot of research trying to find better, better treatments, better, better ideas, better knowledge. There are some trials that we can do in research that don't involve medication, but just involve watching and learning and asking questions. We call these observational studies. They don't require any type of medication. We may monitor movement by wearing a watch or carrying a phone around. We may monitor things in the blood or the spinal fluid or in brain scans by doing these types of tests. And we might ask lots of different questions and scales and keep track over time to see how things change over time and perhaps to compare how things change in some people compared to how things change in other people. And indeed, we'll talk about a program today, a research program that the Michael uh, J. Fox Foundation is sponsoring called PPMI that looks for biomarkers and, and understandings of how Parkinson's begins and how it changes over the years. 
you're also probably aware of how new medicines are needed for Parkinson's and how we've had a lot of new medicines in the past four or five years. And we try to understand these medicines before they can be prescribed either and gotten at the pharmacy. And we do this in research programs that begin in an early phase, what we call phase one, where we check them and make sure they're safe. And then in phase two, we try to find the right dose. And then in phase three, we try to test the right dose against the placebo dose to make sure that a medication has a good effect and has tolerability and is safe before it becomes available to be prescribed uh, by doctors and nurses to, to people who have Parkinson's. So different types of programs, we can have interventional with medications or surgeries, but we can just observe and try to understand better about the disease. Great, thank you very much. John, you're an expert in participation in clinical research. How have you uh, decided, what motivated you to start participating? Because I know also that most of your research uh, studies have included not medication, uh, only about seven, you said. So could you tell us about what motivates you and how do you decide to do the observational versus interventional trials? Thank you for asking me to be in this panel today. First of all, Maria, uh, Christina. But um, 13 years ago when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, I knew I wanted to get involved. And I, I thought of, I was told about advocacy, I was told about clinical trials, and I was told about the fundraising. And I really wasn't crazy about fundraising because I was in sales. I always said I was in sales all my life and everything I sold, I had to go back and collect for about 60 days later. So um, I got involved with clinical trials because I had lost my job and I didn't have insurance. So I got, uh, talked to a social worker who is now retired from Emory, Lynn Ross, and she suggested to do clinical trials because you could get more uh, exams from a movement disorder specialist at a, at a uh, teaching hospital than you could ever imagine. So I kind of got involved in uh, my movement disorder specialist. Emory gives me the business that they lose money on me because they never, they never get to file anything for insurance because almost my visits are for free. So I got involved with clinical trials, and uh, it's just I do it mainly because it it keeps you really abreast of what's going on, and also too, um, you know, be honest, we live with hope when we have Parkinson's, and this gives me hope every day. Great, thank you. But how do you decide between doing an observational, you know, where you don't take medication? How do you decide between one or another? Well, it's just what it's just what it comes about because I don't do a lot of studying on the uh, like uh, Fox trial finders. I actually just get all of my references from basically from my movement disorder specialist, and I know all the clinical trial coordinators. So whatever is available, um, and you know, it's three hundred, but they're anywhere from I've had one that lasted a couple of the lasted for three years, and I've had some that were fifteen minutes. So okay, it, it just depends on what the, what they have available. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. So, mm -hmm. Karen, how do you um, recommend one or another to patients? Okay, we ask um, we look at the patient's medical history to see um, what um, other uh, conditions that they have that would 
contradict some of the inclusion exclusion criteria of studies. We also check to um, and confirm with the doctors and the participants whether they have early PD or, or stages where they require medication. And then we ask them about their availability. You know, if they're early PD, maybe they're still working. We ask about um, transportation issues. And so we ask patients a lot of questions. And then we also, where most medical centers, academic centers are just like a restaurant. And I'm sure they have a menu of studies that they hand out to patients describing the inclusion, exclusion criteria where patients can look over that information and decide what would be the best study for me to participate in due to my condition and environment. So we help them with that type of um, decision making. That's wonderful, thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Isaacson, I was going to ask, a lot of people have concerned um, or have asked if um, they are enrolled in a study and then they later find that they were in the placebo phase, uh, but the study turned out to be, you know, positive and yield some results. Can then um, they later go on and switch to an active active drug? So, you know, really when we're trying to uh, think about new medicines, Nobody would ever want to have a medicine prescribed by their doctors and nurses that we don't know if it works or we don't know if it's safe. So we definitely all want to be part of trying to figure that out before. And some people volunteer. We need about 300 people to volunteer to test a new medicine to see if it's safe and effective. If it turns out that while you were in the research program, you were getting placebo, well, now that it's available and approved, you can have it prescribed and you can take it. And in many of the programs, it's only during the first two months or four months or six months where you get placebo and someone else gets the drug, the real drug. And after that, everyone may be able to get the real drug during an open label type of research program where we try not to compare it, but to see what happens over time. So most research programs will allow people, even if they're on placebo, to then get it through the next phase of the research program, even before it's approved. Many of our patients for this reason have tried and been using and benefiting from some of the new medicines that have been approved over the past five years uh, for, for about 10 years because they were able to get it during that period and stay on it during that period. Great. Thank you for that wonderful um, discussion because there's that's been a lot of questions around that issue. So mm -hmm. we're going to move on. So we all want to be part of the solution. So it's important to, um, to get involved and uh, of course, with everything, there's always benefits and risks. But how do you determine, um, you know, what is best for you? As we talked about, you know, whether uh, you have other uh, medical conditions or, you know, whether it's the distance. So how do you go about, you know, discussing criteria with patients, Karen? Um, we. Once the study is activated, we have what we call institutional review board approval, which you'll, a lot of you probably have heard, it's called IRB. We provide an informed consent to them outlining what we believe are the benefits and the risks. And they are very carefully looking at the information that we provide on consent forms. Once it's approved, we review this information with our participants. And we also go over like the benefits that you are participating in a study and providing help and empowerment and 
giving, if it doesn't, you're helping someone, not only you, but someone else in the future. Um, you get access to Parkinson's experts where you're able to come into an academic medical center to see some well-known uh, movement disorder specialists and also have potential access to all types of treatment. Those are the benefits of participating in clinical research. And one other issue that I want to respect that it is at no cost to you to participate in clinical research. So that is a good benefit. It doesn't affect your Medicare, it doesn't affect your you know, insurance. Most of the clinical research visits are primarily um, at no cost to you at all. And in addition, that most medical centers also provide um, transportation or other things for you to participate where there are no barriers for you to participate. Like if you discuss with your um, movement disorder special, I would love to participate. However, you know, I don't have the transportation. I can't be this. And a lot of centers can provide that information assistance for you. So that's one of the good benefits of participating in clinical research. The risks are, as everyone knows, there are side effects and adverse events. And what we ask as a research coordinator, if you've been involved in a study, we also ask at every visit, how have you felt since you participated in the study? So we are very active monitoring you to just ensure if you've had a known condition, we ask, has it worsened since you started the study? Um, is there anything else that's not normal since you participated? So you're very closely monitored by the clinical staff, the coordinator, and especially the investigator. And then there, as we all know, there's for data breach, um, but there is, are a lot of data systems in place at medical centers, um, especially in pharmaceutical regarding electronic data capture. So that is very well controlled and a lot of centers have to provide a data security policy or a program as to how will you keep patient information secure and safe. So centers are really working to keep information from being breached, but as we all know that things can happen, but we are very much um, putting things in place, have policies and procedures for that. And if there are any risks at any time and a patient feels that, you know, I'm really having difficulty, I'm this is something I can no longer do. You are and can say, you know, I want to be removed from the study and it will not affect your medical care. We still will see you, we'll still ask you for future studies if you're eligible. So those are uh, the potential benefits and risks of participating in clinical research. Great, thank you very much, Karen. You know, it's especially important because a lot of people feel that um, that perhaps is going to affect their Medicare or their insurance, that they, if they don't have insurance, you know, they can't participate. So it's important to know that you do not have to have insurance to be part of a trial or is going to affect your, your insurance benefits like Medicare. Exactly. Um, Dr. Isaacson, how do you um, go about, you know, recruiting uh, diverse groups and minorities for, for these um, studies? 
Well, I think the re recruitment for, for research programs really comes down to awareness. It's awareness that they exist, that we're looking for better options for people who have Parkinson's, whether it's an interventional study with the medication or it's an observational study. We need to, to get awareness, and I think that's where organizations such as the Michael Fox Foundation comes into such a role in trying to spread the word that these opportunities are out there. And since people who have Parkinson's and people who are involved with people who have Parkinson's, whether caregivers, families, therapists, um, exercise people, doctors and nurses, all are in the same boat together trying to find better options. So really the awareness is key. And then on top of awareness, we want education of what it's about, like we do today. What are the other alternatives? What are benefits? What are risks? What is there to gain? What is there to lose by being part and not being part of it? So that's very important as well. And we try to integrate both the medications we prescribe and research opportunities in patients that we see in our clinics, as, as many centers do around the world. So there are other options, not just what's been approved by the FDA. There's other options of things we're looking at that might be best for you at this point. Unfortunately, uh, trying to reach out to communities that we don't see can be very difficult. And trying to include a more diverse population in research programs is critical so we can understand how new medications could affect all different types of people of different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, uh, genders, and such. So it's very difficult and it's a big challenge. And, and I think it's just everyone needs to make everyone else aware of it in different groups that, that no matter who they're seeing, they can still participate in research. Even if you're not seeing that center or that doctor or nurse, you can still be part of research and keep your own doctor and nurses in your own community or your own your own lives. Thank you very much for that. Yes, it's important to, to bring awareness to the different communities because oftentimes uh, most of the research goes on in the large universities, so the rural communities may not be aware. So it's important to have that, that interaction with the physicians and the patients and other parts so that uh, they know what is going on. But also, what I wanted to ask you, one of the things that I hear about a lot, especially within the minority community, the Hispanic community, and some others, that sometimes they're a little discouraged about participating uh, because they say, you know, they didn't meet criteria for a particular study. And so then they get discouraged because they're not told or they feel that, you know, they're not told why they were not, uh, you know, eligible to participate. So how can, what can we do or what are we doing to improve that so that patients are more likely to, even though they may not qualify for one study, go ahead and try again or, you know, don't, don't get discouraged for, you know, trying different trials. Yeah, I think it's an important point. I think as you've heard Karen describe that studies have inclusion and exclusion criteria, really trying to, to make that into a setting where not every medication is right for everybody. We have 25 or more medicines for Parkinson's, and yet most people only try a few because not every medicine is right for everyone. Same thing with the research medicine. It might not be right for you. We have to see and look at certain criteria. Is this good medicine that could help you? Is this a medicine that's safe for you? This is a medicine that could interact with other medicines you have or, or potentially worse than other medical problems you have. It's not that you're being selected. It's whether you can find out if this is something that might benefit you and also be safe in terms of overall. And talking about a research program as if we were talking about a medication that's already available uh, at the pharmacy is important. And trying to integrate this and also to understand that in the research programs, there's no cost. Transportation can be provided. If you live far away, 
you can have this, uh, you may have be a hotel you can stay in closer. If you don't speak English as your first language, we don't want you to misunderstand anything. We can have this translated and approved by the IRBs so that we can make sure we give you important information that, that's understandable to everyone. And taking the time, the time to understand what's going on and the time to take it home and think about it, formulate questions, and then come back in and spend that time to really know that we're looking for the best thing for you. But we have lots of choices, some approved, some being researched, some that are just on the shelves in the, in the uh, uh, health food store. There's many different things that you have to understand what's best for you. Right. I think that's an important point that knowing yourself and your medical history mm -hmm. and also talking to your physician about what is the best thing for you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Um, John, you have participated in lots of studies. So have there been times or is the reason that you've done a lot of observation because um, you've not qualified for other studies or is that something you just chose to do? Stay away from because it is scary to try medication. Yeah. But the good thing is, like uh, I said earlier, if you, I had a, a one clinical trial that I was doing, it was going to be a long clinical trial, and I had I had an adverse reaction to it, and I pulled out of it. Um, so you know, you got you got to put yourself number one and and think what's like the doctor said, what's best for you. I mean, the main thing is is that uh, the thing I don't like to hear people in the Parkinson's community say, I've tried to do a clinical trial, and you know, I didn't qualify, so there's none for me. There's a plenty of them for them if they if they do their re, do their research, and talk to their doctor and talk to the people, um, but it's it's really basically something I chose to do, uh, and and what came up at the time. It just so happens, you know, because when you're you're doing, I did the the trial for the Embresia inhaler, and while I was doing that, I couldn't do other things. So you know, it kind of will regulate your time and what you can do and what you can do as far as a clinical trial. Thank you. I think one of the other things that is important to keep in mind, um, you know, the distance, how often you have to to meet with the physicians, what kind of studies, and also even though there may be some intervention, like you know, perhaps a study requires lumbar punctures, um, you can, uh, depending on the place, but I think most times you can say, you know, you can participate on different studies, but not have all the, you know, the lumbar punctures they need, maybe one or two or you know because of whatever reasons. And so you can talk to your physician and talk to the coordinators about what you can do. Uh, so you're not, uh, it's not all black and white to say, well, I can't do the lumbar punctures. I'm not going to do that study unless that's all they're studying, the lumbar punctures, the CSF. But if they're doing that as part of other studies, you can still perhaps most likely participate uh, in, in the trial. Uh, but knowing yourself is important. I, for instance, have a lot of... Um, other um, medical illnesses. So it really um, cuts down my eligibility for participating in a lot of medical trials. Uh, however, I have participated like John on a lot of uh, trials that include, you know, sleep and visual problems and, uh, you know, doing other uh, smell tests and, and things like that so that you can still participate and contribute without having to take medication uh, if you're not able to do that. So, studies too because I've done one that I actually went to a facility here in Atlanta State for seven days and didn't go home. Right. So it's important to have the family involved. Karen, what do you right. have to say about the family uh, involvement another, and support? Just another point regarding um, study participation, that's thing. 
um, a lot of studies, and you can ask your, um, your physician, the study coordinator, a lot of studies are able to do what we call virtual visits, that we can do it from your home. You don't have to come into the clinic. There are some um, observational studies where if you have the technology of a smartphone, computer, or a family member that can assist you with that, we're able to do some studies via the computer or in, especially if they're um, patient outcome reported type of studies like questionnaires and forms. So those are also some studies that you may be eligible for without really leaving your home. Yeah, that's important. Thank you. And you brought us to the next to the next point, uh, Dr. Eisenstein. So, in this time of uh, pandemic and uh, uh, social distancing, how have you uh, found that um, recruitment has shifted or changed? And what can patients do to still participate uh, if they're not able to come in uh, in person uh, because of the restrictions we still have? Yeah. Well, certainly the uh, the COVID pandemic has really began began to put a real crimp in, in research programs. And this is problematic because we want to finish the research program sooner and get an answer and get new drugs, uh, right. new answers. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily, uh, remarkably, globally, all the sponsors of the programs, whether they were pharmaceutical companies or organizations, were able to shift very quickly to virtual or telemedicine-type visits to allow the research programs to keep going. And we found that a lot of our patients who were stuck at home because of the pandemic um, had time, had time they may not have had before. They weren't traveling to see grandchildren. They were going on trips. Uh, they had more time. And we were able to isolate our office and have offices that were available and not had other people there. Uh, so we could really have people feel comfortable coming in a back door and going into a room and being isolated, uh, of course, with all the proper protection. And now with the vaccinations, all the research staff, all the staff is vaccinated. So people can feel a little more assured uh, and feel safe to continue doing this because, you know, COVID is no time to ignore Parkinson's. In fact, COVID was an opportunity to double down on Parkinson's and try to really redo and re recruit and get everything in order so we could start really working hard and having everyone ready to keep the research going so we don't lose any time in, in finding out the answers that we want to know. So I think we've been able to emerge from this, and I think uh, around the country, many centers have been able to emerge, um, better able to help patients know about, be aware, join research, and, and continue these studies that are so important. That's that's good. Thank you very much. Yes, it's important that that patients uh, and family members know that just because we're still having some precautions, you can still participate, and you may have more more opportunities uh, in participating than you had before prior to pandemic. Because now we do have that telemedicine and uh, and able to to do that. So thank you. So I think now we're going to shift a little bit. We're going to go to uh, take a little short break uh, to call out the foundation landmark study, the PPMI, uh, which is recruiting. And this is a Parkinson's progression marketer, mark, markers initiative, I apologize. Um, and this could change everything for the way we diagnose, we treat uh, Parkinson's in the future. And this study is really uh, warning people, brothers, sisters, parents, everyone related to, uh, to Parkinson's so that we can 
hopefully find the markers we need soon uh, to be able to treat and diagnose early uh, and start making uh, progress and perhaps prevention and, and, and curing the disease. So um, I think we've been talking about this all along, choosing the right study for you. We talked about the eligibility criteria, uh, the time from diagnosis, age. Um, does, it says here DVS, can you tell us about um, a little bit about your criteria for uh, DVS participation. I'm not sure if they're still doing some DVS studies or not, uh, but uh, if you can let us know a little bit, Dr. Eisenstein, about what you know patients should think about when considering DVS. So I think um, you know, two, two, two different ideas with DVS. One is there's been a lot of new systems for DVS, and those went through research programs to make sure that they were safe and how they work, and, and now there's uh, three different systems, uh, actually, uh, with the old one, there's three new ones. Um, yes. So that's very important. And certainly surgical studies are something that's going on a lot now, trying to find some way of doing gene therapy or trying to find safer or better ways to do brain surgery. And those surgeries go on. And those are a little bit different because some of them have different ideas on how we might have a controlled placebo group. Who do we compare people to? But also in many other studies, if you've had deep brain stimulation, you may not be eligible to test a new medicine because we don't know enough about how that new medicine would work in someone who has a, a deep brain stimulator in the brain. But other studies, you could have a DBS and, and be in the studies. We have ongoing studies from everything from constipation to low blood pressure uh, to new medications to try to slow down the disease. And some of the studies do allow deep brain stimulation and some don't. Um, so it's like any other medical condition or any other medication. They all have to be looked at as a whole. Holistically, we have to decide, do you need more physical therapy? Do you need a more education? Do you need to have your medicines you take adjusted to different times? Do you need a new medicine from the pharmacy or, you, or do you need a new medicine that's being looked at in a research program? Great, yes. You brought an important question, uh, topic about, you know, the fact that you may have DVS or considering DVS. Uh, it's important to, I guess, talk to your physician about whether or not this is going to affect later on participation in other trials and also, you know, taking other medications because sometimes patients may not be aware of that. So they may choose to do uh, a procedure and then uh, be a little disappointed later on when they're not able to participate in other things or take other medications. But in choosing whether or not to participate uh, perhaps in a trial for uh, surgical procedure, how any recommendations that you give them may differ from, you know, participation in other uh, clinical uh, trials? Well, certainly once you've had some type of brain surgery, that's a threshold and then you can't really go back. You can't unoperate <laughs> on, on the brain. So, so it's not as simple as saying, well, I'm in this research program. I thought it was a good idea. I don't think it's such a good idea for me now. I want to stop. And then we say that's absolutely fine. We can stop it. We'll still take care of you. You can still be, and we'll still, with brain surgery, it's a little different because the brain surgery may have already occurred. So, so that's a little bit different. So you have to think about that uh, beforehand and then make sure that it's right for you because it's not as simple as to stop it if it's already uh, been implanted. Right. Thank you. A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people age 60 and up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org slash PPMI to see if you're eligible. 
That's michaeljfox.org slash PPMI. We have a question from the audience. Uh, why do studies require not taking medications prior to uh, being evaluated or doing the studies? So, so um, there, there are two issues. When, when someone is not yet taking medicine to treat Parkinson's disease after diagnosis, this may go on for six months or a year or two, depending on the symptoms. And there are some new medications that are being tested to see if they can slow the progression or uh, Parkinson's. That would be great if we could find something that could slow or stop the progression of Parkinson's. In order to test and see if that's possible, it only enrolls patients in these research programs who are not yet being treated for symptoms that we could evaluate the symptoms over time and see if they get more worse or less worse, depending on whether this research medicine is being taken or a placebo medication is being taken. If someone was already taking levodopa or another dopamine type medicine, it might interfere with knowing whether or not uh, this, is, this is working. Uh, but in any research program, no matter what medicines you could be taking for Parkinson's disease treatment, we'd wanna hold them stable and not have them changed usually for about 30 days before and throughout the research program so we can compare just the new medicine being added on without confounders that might make it confusing to understand how the medicine works or, or what side effects it might have. That's important. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, I also wanted to add a, a question that perhaps, um, not sure if this is the right time, but... Um, now I lost my train of thought. I apologize. But uh, one of the things that a lot of patients, um, you know, when they're looking to see whether they're uh, a candidate for DBS, a lot of times, uh, you know, we want to evaluate them off of their medications. And this is one of the complaints I hear a lot. And and now being a patient myself is horrible being off medication. So um, I was wondering, now that we are using more telemedicine and telehealth and virtual uh, meetings, is this become a little bit easier to do? Are we seeing patients, you know, at home off their medicine so they're not having to do the traveling and having to, to be off medications away from home? Is that anything that we're doing or considering doing? It's such an important point. I mean, and it's why it's so important that, the, that when we design research programs, they're not designed in a vacuum, but they include all stakeholders, people living with Parkinson's, their families and caregivers, because this is really a very important point. In our field, we've defined something called an overnight defined off. We say don't take any medicine since last night and, and coming in the morning. How unfortunate to make people who are having problems, symptoms, and mobility have to travel in in the morning if it's not necessary. Sometimes it's necessary because we have to understand how things can be. And in those situations, we're hopefully able to arrange for a local hotel. We can stay overnight and transportation and such. But many other times it's not necessary, or perhaps it can be done virtually. We've taken the approach with some of the uh, programs to see someone after the first dose is worn off. So someone can come in when the medicine's still working with the first dose and then wait a couple of hours until it's not working and, and do the evaluations there, especially with some medications that can be administered on demand. So I think it's really important that we really understand the experiences of the journey and the days of what it's like to wake up and not take medication before we casually say, come in so we can evaluate. And that's really not the best time of day necessarily to do it. And as, as people uh, with Parkinson's know, if you delay that first dose for a couple of hours, whether it's for a research evaluation or just for other reasons, 
that first dose probably doesn't work so well anyway. So we're not going to get a good evaluation. That's true. Thank you very much. Um, Karen, going back to you, uh, you know, in choosing the right study, again, going back to minorities and um, the logistics of travel and informed consent. Can you tell us about how that may differ um, within the different populations of what you're doing at your um, at your institute to improve that, uh, to bring especially with the PPMI, and we're gonna be talking more about that in a bit. Right, um, in regards to um, travel or transportation, we have ensured at Northwestern for that not to be a barrier for anyone that wants to participate in clinical trials. We always ask the patient if you, you know, because like we just said, DBS, if you have to be off meds or on meds, we'll provide car service for you where you are not driving or one really has to come with you. So, and I think a lot of institutions or medical center, academic centers are able to provide that and do provide that for their patients, that there are no actual barriers of limitation for coming into the center. Um, in addition to the informed consent, we are reviewing coordinators, review the informed consent with all participants on their level. We ask them, we give them a little brief, brief overview of the study, we talk about it with them, and then we also just ask, do you have any questions and, and any concerns? And we all know that maybe some patients will tell a coordinator more than they'll tell an investigator. So we have, you, a coordinator really develops a good working relationship and, with the participants, and we're able to know, you know, what is it that you really need? What are the barriers for you? In addition to um, the underrepresented um, patient population and clinical research, we are seeing that providing people with more education about the symptoms of PD, where a lot of people think that, you know, there is it a blood test that tells me I have it, or is there something type of x-ray and a lot of people don't know that it's just clinical diagnosis so we're educating all areas in that um, arena as well and we're learning now too for clinical research that we really are reaching out to family members the younger generation of the participants such as maybe the, the kids the grandchildren or someone that's able to get actively involved with research in Parkinson's disease as well. So there are a lot of different um, entities that clinical research and the research staff at all academic centers are making to be successful in clinical trials activity across the board. Good, um, thank you. Do you um, see that having a good support system improves participation or helps uh, being able to stay uh, the whole course of the, the trial? Do you recommend well, for, for patients to have, you know, at least mm -hmm. someone there or, or have somebody at home that will uh, support them? Yes, I, we found that um, like a caregiver or a spouse or someone like that that is actively with the patient and involved and the patient is actively interested and involved, we get a lot of additional support. We get um, 
as we'll talk later about the PPMI study for participation as a healthy control that, hey, I want to help my grandma, I want to help my mom, I want to help my husband. And so we are seeing that that information and that collaboration is really growing in the field. Okay. And, um, like I said, a lot of patients are, you know, even becoming very good advocates to even share with other patients that are a little hesitant about participating in clinical research and sharing okay. their experience. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on. So where do we find a study? So, um, one, we can visit the Fox trial at foxtrialfinder.org. Uh, which is linked in your resource list. And um, if you can tell us, Karen, um, about local resource at your clinic, finding studies uh, in your community and, and telling other patients about studies, how do you go about doing that? Um, what do you um, recommend? Um, as you can see on the slide, foxtrialfinder.org is an excellent way of finding clinical trials for Parkinson's disease. Your physician, when they see you, they are heavily invested in clinical research as well. They will present a study to you and then say, hey, we have someone that will talk to you further to give you more information, such as me, a study coordinator. You can go on to foxinsight.org. That's another good way that if you put in your information and your location, that it goes straight to a designated person at a specific site or medical center. And they contact you and get back to you and talk to you one-on-one -on -one about, um, you know, the inclusion, the exclusion, and your, you know, interests and conditions and all the questions that we've already talked about. In addition, any medical center that um, you are aware of, you can go onto the website and look for movement disorders or Parkinson's disease clinical research. A lot of academic medical centers have a designated website for clinical trials. So that would be an easy way to do it as well. Just say if you're in... Um, um, at, um, in Houston at Baylor, you can go on Google that area. If you are in Chicagoland, you can do Northwestern um, Medical Center, Rush Medical Center, and you will be able to find the different clinical trials that are at each medical center. And you will see that most of the medical centers are doing some of the same studies. So mm -hmm. there, there is a way that you'll be able to determine what area I want to go into, where, and, and even if you're out of state or out of location, don't be afraid to contact the center that's out of your area. Like I say, there's a lot of studies and just as for PPMI will cover travel so that you can participate. So those are additional things that you can think of as well and use to your advantage to for participation. Great, thank you very much. So John, being an expert on clinical trials, how do you go about finding um, studies? I find my, my networking is, is my best source. Uh, talking to my movement disorder specialist, get to know the uh, clinical trial coordinators at the, uh, at the facility you go to because you're making their job easier. So they're, they're, they want to know you. So, and if you show an interest, 
Also, too, I think that there's so many clinical trials that are actually something I want to point out that are actually fun. I mean, like in Atlanta here, uh, Dr. Madeline Hackney does uh, tango dancing clinical trials. Ooh, that's fun. So, I mean, you know, if you want to learn to get free tango lessons, you can you can do that. So, um, but I, I just really network and find out the clinical trials that are are in the area, and or that I might be interested in. Talk to different people. Um, I think that the I think that with your clinical trials it goes along with your advocacy, because uh, this is mentioned that you know Parkinson's is a condition that uh, a lot of times it doesn't affect people until it slaps them in the face with somebody in their family, but this way you get more people involved too. So my networking is would be my key source for this. Just to add to what John said, and when you're looking at clinical trials, like you said, tango dancing, there are also exercise um, clinical yeah. trials out there that you can do and have fun, exercise or um, different type of activity, which helps slow down the progression of Parkinson's disease. So there are quite a few different, like wearing a watch. You get a, sometimes if you're um, monitoring your use of study medication and things like that, you get a free watch. <laughs> so there's a yeah. lot of benefits to um, also doing research. I always say, just do something. <laughs> you know, people say, yes. what should I do? And I say, do something. Don't sit on Facebook, do something. <laughs> Well, that's one of the benefits, getting active and getting your your natural chemicals to get going. But I wish I would have known about the chocolate study. That would have been one of the first and real in that. <laughs> so anyway, um, another way that you can get involved is um, the Fox Inside. You can do this online. Uh, it's easy. You just fill a questionnaire and it comes, uh, I forget, every three months or every few months. And they'll uh, message you and you can fill out and you can still participate and you can be part of the the cure and finding answers about the disease. So you can do that from your own home. So now we're gonna go to the our last slide, the PPM, PPMI needs you. And we're gonna let Dr. Isaacson tell us about the need to enroll people uh, for this uh, study and why it's important. Only one of the most uh, common and probably the most frustrating questions for, for someone with Parkinson's and for someone like me trying to answer it is, why did I get Parkinson's? And we're trying to understand, well, why, why did you get Parkinson's and not your brother or sister or cousin? Or, or how come you have Parkinson's and your parent does, but not your sibling? We're trying to understand this. And, and we also know that Parkinson's disease may begin five or 10 or maybe 20 years before we diagnose it with, with things we never really think about, like constipation or acting out of the dreams, a sleep disorder or loss of smell. Um, so we have some ideas that maybe if we could figure out who has a certain gene that raises the risk of developing Parkinson's, but they don't have Parkinson's now, or, or they have a, a sleep disorder and they act out their dreams, um, or, or maybe they don't have a risk for Parkinson's, but they want to help find a, find a cure uh, for it. We're trying to find people who are at risk of developing Parkinson's so we can follow them and then see if Parkinson's occurs and compare them to people who are at risk in Parkinson's doesn't occur. So we can find a difference. Maybe that would be a clue that we could find something to stop Parkinson's from occurring in people who are at risk for it. And that's what the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI, is, this important landmark study that's been going on for over 10 years. And now it's been rebooted to really focus 
on trying to figure out what causes Parkinson's and how can we find something that we can intervene with. So anyone who, who thinks they know people or, or, or maybe at increased risk, you know, you might have a gene or you have acting out of the dreams. Or Now, most people with the gene or who act out the dreams don't get Parkinson's, but some do. And that's what we're trying to figure out who does and who doesn't and why. Thank you. Yes, and some people want to know how can the relatives uh, of people with Parkinson's, you know, participate in this research? And I think you mentioned that before, but if you can just remind us what they can do. So I think anyone who has any interest in finding out more about it, either because they want to be part of it or they have someone they know who may want to be part of it or they just want to know about it because they want to spread the word to other people at groups and meetings and such, can log on to a website the michaeljfox.org website. And if you do backslash and PPMI, uh, you can get a lot of information on, on the resources there on how you can be part of uh, trying to either be part of it or seeing if it's right for you or someone you know, or if you just want to get information to hand out to people and try to spread the word that way. Yes, thank you. And, and just to remind everybody, the michaeljfox.org PPMI slide, forward slash PPMI, you can get more information. And the recruiting uh, people Parkinson's diagnosed within the last two years and not yet taking PD medications. Uh, Karen, just if you can briefly tell us before we're running close to time, uh, tell us about your experience with the PP, being a coordinator for PPMI and and uh, your book club and sense of community you have with this? Um, I have been part of the PPMI study for over 10 years, and um, it has been a, such a rewarding and excellent experience, I think, not only for me and the court, other coordinators that work on this study, but also for our patients. We have developed a real cohesive quote, like community family, because we do have a lot of participants that are enrolled in the PPMI study. And before the pandemic would happen, each medical center would have like an annual event, bringing the participants together to talk about the results, to talk about um, what has been shown with the data thus far. And since the pandemic has happened, we have done virtual visits. So we're just still doing trying to keep our community together, talking to patients, getting involved. And because we want to keep them engaged, me as a coordinator, I am so heavily invested with my uh, participants and all of our research. I've started what a book club for us to read the Michael J. Fox new book, for us to talk about it, to see if there's any similarity or things that we can discuss. So that is currently in process. We are also um, thinking about just doing a community get together for maybe having a, a toast or a drink to all of the participants in the PPMI study. So once you participate in a study, your center, because all of the research coordinators that work through with the PPMI study meet to talk about our different experiences, share things, um, help one another for engaging and retention. So not only are you get, getting a person like me at different, you're getting it throughout all of the centers that participate in PPMI because we're all on the same page. We're trying to keep community and to keep our participant first. So we're not looking at um, people that enroll in the PPM as research people, they are our participants that we have become like family because PPMI is a long-term study, as I 
Dr. Isaac and as I already said, it was a 10-year study and it's rebooted for another study. And patients seem to be willing to stay in it. And I think that's really great and we love it. That's great. Thank you very much. I guess this question is for everybody. Do you guys know if um, patients from other countries can participate in any of this, the PPMI or the Fox Insight or any of the other? Um, the PPMI study has um, brought on new sites across international globe, right, Dr. Isaacson? There is um, quite a few. Okay. So if you log into the PPMI as the Michael J. PPMI, it will tell you all the sites that are actively involved in the PPMI study, and you'll see there are a lot of new international sites that have joined us in the study as well. Wonderful. Thank you. And another person asked, uh, is there a spinal tap included in this PPMI? Anyone? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, and I can only speak for Northwestern. Yes, it, it is a spinal tap. However, um, it depends on your site in the center. Um, the investigators that perform the spinal tap, I know we get a lot of people that have historical experience, but they are very well versed in conducting a spinal uh, tap. It takes a you know, and at Northwestern, we have an ex expert, the pain specialist that does ours and it's done within five minutes and it's over. But as this study has been going on for some time, all of the investigators are very experienced in doing the spinal tap. And there is very minimal headache because there's a special needle that they're using. So it is very, um, it's not as bad as people think it is or it used to be. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And just a reminder, uh, you can go to the link we mentioned before, michaeljfox.org slash for PPMI, and you can learn about uh, more information. Also, the sites, the recruiting. But uh, I think... I want to thank everybody right now for being part of this wonderful webinar and for joining us today, uh, for all of your expertise and knowledge and for, for giving of your time. Uh, and we'll be sending a link to everyone on demand to listen again and share if you like. I uh, hope you found this webinar very helpful and mark your calendars for the next webinar on May 20th. We have a few minutes. If you have a last minute question that you'd like to um, send us we will be glad to to respond okay the last question do we need a neurologist approval to participate in a trial well, anyone that you need any neurologist approval but you should discuss it with whoever's taking care of uh, and helping you with your parkinson's and uh, your doctors and nurses as well as at the research site if it's different the doctor and nurse get involved everyone should be in agreement so everyone's of like mind Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. One last question I wanted to ask John. Um, some people, um, they live alone, and so they may feel they may not um, be able to participate in studies. But John, tell us about your experience since you've done a lot of this. Has traveling or going to a, a study been um, an issue since um, you live by yourself? It can be. Um, you know, you talked about the going off the medication, but sometimes that's really a good thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, to, see, to, go, to go see your doctor. Because sometimes the doctor doesn't, you know, you can only tell him how you feel. And if he can see it when you go in there, 
You know, mm-hmm. uh, there have been times when I when I've actually was having a problem, and I've actually had somebody take me, and I would went off my medication on purpose to go to my my uh, my exam. Uh, and if not, they could take a video of it with your phone because he might not, you know, he or she might not understand. But uh, no, other than other than the, the the the, if you do have to go out, there's some issues there for me. But other than that, there's so many clinical trials out there that you know it, it, it shouldn't be an issue, and especially today with things this being so many things virtual. Mm-hmm. And I guess a couple of questions. Uh, someone wants to know, have there been any issues when you've done experimental uh, drugs, participated in, in trials like Embrija? Any issues that you experience with the trials or anything you'd like to share with us? Well, there, there's been one that I did bail out on because I was having problems with hallucinations for a trial. But then there was some that, uh, you know, we're, we, we, we were just worked our way through because we could see the advantages of it. Um, but, you know, I just, I just think that everybody needs to get involved. I mean, cause it, it's different for everybody, how they're going to act and respond and doing a clinical trial. And, uh, you know, if they, uh, it's something they have to feel comfortable with. Right. The last question, um, any issues with, um, reading through the consent forms, anything that were you able to, for the most part, all the trials that you've done, able to to have a good um, working knowledge of what you were, you know, signing up for? Were there people there to to help you navigate that? You know, that's something that sometimes is a concern for, for some patients or they families. They will go over the entire thing with you, but it's like buying your, reading your mortgage if you can buy a house. If you read all that, <laughs> you might not even do the trial. But I, the other thing that was not, not mentioned here was a lot of these clinical trials you get compensated for, you know, yeah. uh, and I've actually used the money to donate to people doing fundraising efforts. Um, we have a mutual friend down in Arizona that does different things and I will donate money from my pot of that money I've gotten from doing clinical trials. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've come to the end of our journey, and I thank you. But I wanted to just remind everybody to get involved in research. And don't forget to click on the Get Started link in the Take Action box. And I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of the day and weekend. And uh, if you have any questions, shoot us some emails. And thank you again for all the participants and uh, the expert panelists. Have a wonderful day. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.